Welcome. My name is Patrick Curran, and along with my highly regressed friend Greg Hancock, we make up Quantitude. We are a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In this week's episode, Greg and I launch a new occasional series called Stuff You Should Know. The topic for today is regression to the mean. What the heck is it? How does it arise in everyday life? And what can we do about it? Along the way, we also discuss the space-time continuum, Kai Rizdahl, inflation, the witches of Macbeth, the hidden curriculum, oh dang, stuff you should know, SAT prep courses, the triumph of mediocrity, angstroms, blobs, reinventing history, and being patronizing. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. There's always a weird wrinkle in the space-time continuum with the podcast with you, Mm -hmm. because as we speak right now, when people hear it, it's actually several weeks from now. Mm -hmm. In our real time, we're editing stuff that has already been dropped by the time this is dropped. Marty, you've got to come back with me. Where? Back to the future. (laughs) In that spirit, you sent me a rough cut of confidence intervals. Uh I listened to it last night. The opening banter in that was stuff that we don't understand. And we talked about your deciding to pay for conferences out of your own pocket because you can't figure (laughs) out the portal. It's too hard. (laughs) And how does your car know it has a flat tire? Things like that. Uh But it got me thinking about that same concept of things that you should really understand, but are actually more serious. Mm Mm-hmm. After I finished listening to the rough cut, I turned back over to the radio. Mm-hmm. On came my bromance, Kai Rizdal. <laughs> <sighs> Kai Rizdal with Marketplace. From American Public Media, this is Marketplace. They had an amazing story on inflation. How do you measure it? Is it changing? One index says it is. One index says it isn't. If you're going to navigate life, shouldn't you really understand inflation? This is Marketplace. I'm Kai Rizdal. The ways you can measure inflation in this economy, you've got a couple of options, statistics and data-wise, most specifically. That is, why does it exist? I bet you got this from your dad. My dad, gas was 25 cents a gallon, and he bought his first house for Mm $4,000, and he never let this go. The metric system is the tool of the devil. My car gets 40 rods to the hog's head, and that's the way I like it. And I pointed out that he made like $500 a year as a high school teacher. (laughs) He found that point irrelevant. His house was $4,000 when he bought it. Why does inflation exist? Why do we need it? Because Kai tells me we need inflation, just not too much inflation. We talk about inflation a lot on this program. Too much for some of you. I know that because you tell me. You know, Patrick, I would explain inflation to you, but I don't really understand. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, right, I could Google it and I go, oh, okay. I mean, I kind of get that. But there's a lot of grown-up stuff. If I'm just being completely honest, I don't understand. And I shouldn't be allowed to function as a grown-up without it. Okay, you're raising a really good point. Here's something that we should know. And we can come up with a hundred of these examples. The Electoral College. How do the Iowa caucuses work? As best as I can Uh, tell it, it's like (laughs) the witches of Macbeth Uh figure out who the nominee is going to be. Say from whence you owe this strange intelligence or why upon this blasted heath you stop our way with such prophetic greeting. (laughs) Were we ever taught this explicitly in school? Hmm. Maybe we were. 
We've talked in the past about tangible benefits of being a faculty member and intangible benefits. Mm -hmm. One of the intangible ones that I have always loved is the hidden curriculum. Oh, yeah. That is, we expect graduate students to know all of these things, particularly in quantitative methods, but none of us get around to actually teaching it, yet we're totally self-righteous about how is it you don't know about X? Yeah. And they patiently pause and say, well, I was never exposed to (laughs) X. And then you do this mental reckoning of the entire curriculum and you're like, oh, dang. Oh, dang. That's what this episode should be called. Oh, dang. (laughs) I have conversations with our students. I will bring something up that I consider to be absolutely fundamental. And there's a part of me that says they should have figured that out on their own. But in fact, they didn't even know to figure that out. So all of this brings us to a new type of episode that Greg and I are going to do occasionally when we feel like it. (laughs) It is, and I'm going to borrow from a prior grad student of mine who shared this term with me from their own teaching. We are proud to announce the inauguration of shit you should know for quantitative (laughs) methodology. Do we have a more family-friendly name? We really try hard to keep this family-friendly. Do we? <laughs> we have not thus far. Uh, okay, that's true. Fine. I will recast it. Stuff you should know. S-Y-S-K. There you go. So I was first exposed to this from Chris Strauss. Yeah. Chris was my doctoral student, a remarkable human being, wrapped up last year, is now in the quantitative psych program at Vanderbilt University which I like to call UNC West. (laughs) They are a remarkably gifted teacher. I had the opportunity to work with them where they TA'd for me and we did this in the class. At the end of each week, I would email out SYSK, stuff you should know from the week. For all of my rambling, all of my side stories, all of the things that I talk about, we're going to sift through the wreckage at the end of the runway, and these are the things that I want you to know from this particular week. The readings, the problem sets, the lecture. This is the stuff you should know. Mm -hmm. I think we should apply it here. If you're going to navigate the field of quant. Now, remember, there's a whole distribution of quantiness. You can be (laughs) hardcore quant. You can be quant curious. You can be quanty. (laughs) If you're going to navigate it, these are things that you should have at your fingertips that you should know. Uh I am going to propose that today we focus on regression to the mean. Uh, I've heard of that. (laughs) (laughs) This is something that not only Greg and I feel like is misunderstood, but there's actually a hundred years of literature where every couple of decades it is rediscovered, it's presented as this novel thing, and then one of the old guard weighs in and says, you morons, we've been talking about this since the dawn of time. (laughs) What is it? How does it manifest itself in our work? And why should you know what this is on the continuum of quantiness? 
And in theory, it could come up in a number of places in the curriculum. If it does, it's a fairly passing mention at best. It could come up in a research design class. Does it? I don't know. It could come up in an introductory statistics class. Does it? I don't know. One of the nice things about your choice of this topic is that this is not just a topic for people who are interested in quantitative methods. This is a topic for people out there in the world who are consumers of things that happen every day. We could do the entire episode just on dumb examples that a substantive interpretation has been given to a statistical artifact. Oh, there are tons of examples. Let's imagine that a new player in the NFL, National Football League, for our international listeners, by football, we mean the sport where the foot seldom touches the ball. <laughs> so in the National Football League, they will award something called Rookie of the Year, which is for the new player who has the absolute best performance, crazy good performance that year. And the 2022 AP Offensive Rookie of the Year is... Garrett Wilson. And you know what happens the following year? That person will play worse. While some second-year players will make the jump to stardom, others will disappoint and or leave us mystified about what they'll end up becoming. And you see this all the time. There's a thing called the Sports Illustrated Jinx, where anytime somebody appears on the cover of Sports Illustrated, their performance goes down. Absolutely. One of my favorites is I just put a couple of kids into college. We did the whole, do you take the SAT? Do you take the SAT prep course? There's empirical data that shows if you have a low SAT score and you take a prep course, on average, your SAT score will increase. And obviously, obviously. it's because of the SAT prep course. <laughs> All right. Now let's bring this into the academic realm. Imagine that I'm in a research setting in a classroom where I identify some kids who are having extreme behavior problems. I give them some kind of intervention, and then I notice that after a while, their behavior seems to improve, right? There are fewer negative behaviors exhibited. At the same time, I go to kids who have had off-the-charts fantastic behavior, and I go to them and say, hey, we are really pleased with how your behavior has been. You keep it up. And then I come back later on and I notice <laughs> that on average, they have had more negative behaviors than they had had previously. My kid's birthday is September 4th. Cutoff for kindergarten is September 1st. My wife and I considered, did we want to put them in early, but you had to pass a test? All right. Now, keep in mind, they're four. All right. Academic <laughs> achievement at this point is pulling your finger out of your nose. <laughs> But the rule was you took an academic test and you had uh -huh. to score in the top 98% to be admitted into kindergarten early. Uh -huh. So you admit those top 2%, and then as kindergarten unfolds, they'd fail to meet all expectations. Hmm. What's going on, Hancock? Give me a historical walk down memory lane. Historically... If we go back to our old friend, Sir Francis Galton, you remember Sir Francis Galton. We kind of like Galton for some things, and we kind of don't like him for other things. That's right. So he made a lot of wonderful statistical contributions, although maybe not quite as smart as he thought he was. Also, what's the term that you use? Horrible human being. He's a horrible, horrible, <laughs> horrible human being. He was the founder of the eugenics movement. Yeah. And when we talk about Galton and we talk about correlation and we talk about regression and everything that we talk about, he made remarkable contributions statistically. He is a horrible, horrible <laughs> human being. 
now that we've got the disclaimer out of the way. So one of the things that he was interested in studying was heredity and how traits are passed on from parents to children. And in the spirit of some of the horrible, horrible things that he was interested in, part of that was to maybe make decisions about who ought to be contributing to society and who ought not to be. But he still was very interested in understanding about the passing on of those kinds of traits. And a classic example that is used from his data has to do with heights. So he measured the heights of parents and the heights of their children. He did something funky where he took an aggregate of the mother's height and the father's height, and then he often took an aggregate of the children's heights when there were multiple children. But in a plot of the mid-parent height, I think is what he called it, and the mid-child height, what he noticed was that for parents who were taller they tended on average to have shorter children. And for parents who were shorter, they tended on average to have taller children. And he was fascinated by this trait that surely had to be some genetic characteristic. And he used the term regression to mediocrity. And he considered it to be a legitimate phenomenon in the evolution of humans that we were somehow moving toward some average, some golden center from generation to generation. Cutting to the final scene of the movie, it turns out it's a complete statistical artifact. Completely. And that is the focus of our conversation here. The number of years and the number of people that we have twisted ourselves into knots to give a causal explanation for what is literally a mathematical statistical artifact. It can't be any other way than it is. Now, in 30 or 40 minutes, we're trying to talk about something that entire textbooks have written about, that a century of literature has addressed. As always, we will put up readings in the show notes, and if you're interested, there is a lot of fun stuff to read on this. One of my favorite little books by Don Campbell and Dave Kennedy is called A Primer on Regression Artifacts, and it leaves no stone unturned. (laughs) I highly, highly recommend that. It's very good. There's a wonderful paper by Steven Stigler, Mm -hmm. Regression Toward the Mean Historically Considered. We'll put that up as well. Let me give you an example of how I sometimes think about it. Mm-hmm. We're going to oversimplify to the extreme because we could have several multi-hour long lectures on this topic. Very briefly, the core of the statistical issue is the imperfect correlation between two measures. So you have parents' height and you have children's height. You have the SAT before you take a prep and you have the SAT after you take a prep. And why this happens from an artifactual way is the correlation between those measures are not Mm 1.0. They are less than 1. Take at one end of the extreme, you have a highly reliable measure. So you have a super precise measure of height. Mm -hmm. So it's laser height measurement. (laughs) The pretest, you measure 100 kids' height. And then the post-test, eight hours later, you measure the kid's height, all right? Mm -hmm. Let's go ahead and put in an angstrom of measurement error, (laughs) and you have a correlation of (laughs) 0.999 between the two. But let's say you pick the top 10 kids at the pre-test on height. Those are going to be the top 10 kids in the post-measure height. Sure. Because the rank of the 100 for pre is exactly the same as the rank at post. That's right. And that's why the correlation of a measure with itself is an assessment of the measure's reliability, right? The idea of test-retest reliability. 
Now go to the opposite end of the continuum. You've got a 100-item true-false test where you don't give any stems. It's just <laughs> true or false for 100 items. I've gone into exams where it felt just like they didn't I give me. I took the SAT feeling that way. <laughs> but give it to 100 kids and they randomly circle trues and falses. Yeah. And they do that at the pretest. And then you give them exactly the same test, which of course is just 100 true falses, and they randomly respond in the post test. What is the pre post correlation on average? Well, it's going to be zero. It's a random process. That's right. So if you think about it from a reliability perspective, your laser height measure would have a test-retest correlation of near one. And so we would consider that to be perfectly reliable. But the true-false test has a test-retest correlation near zero. So we would consider that completely unreliable. Now, pick the top 10 kids at pre. They're going to be a completely different set of top 10 kids at post because it's just blind-ass luck as to whether you happen to get a few more at the pre-test relative to the post-test. I like thinking about those as the bookends. You have a correlation of zero, you have a correlation of one, and like everything we do in life, we live in the interstitial region. There's a visual that goes with this that I like so, so much. If we think about your correlation of one and we have the regression line, oh, that word is sounding so important and relevant right now, right? You've got that regression line, which is perfect, not a point deviating from it. If I standardize X and I standardize Y and those things correlate perfectly, I have this line that's just at a beautiful 45 degree angle. If your Z-score on X is one, meaning you're one standard deviation above the mean, then your Z-score on Y is one. You are one standard deviation above the mean. Boom. They just go together. If the correlation is zero, what does your scatter plot look like? Well, usually a blob of stuff. And where is the best fit line for a blob? You can put a line through a blob anywhere, but if you're talking about a regression line where you're using X to understand Y, that regression line is completely flat. So if I've converted all the X's to Z-scores and I've converted all the Y's to Z-scores, I say, well, what would I predict for someone who is average on X? Someone who has a Z-score of zero, I'd go, well, you know, I'd predict that they'd be average on Y. I say, okay, okay, okay. What if someone has a Z-score of two on X? They're two standard deviations above the mean on X. What do you predict for them on Y? Uh, I, I predict that they'll still be average. They'll have a Z-score of zero. Because X gives you no information about Y, that best fit line has laid all the way down. It has regressed to the horizontal. It has regressed all the way to the mean. And what you describe are all the places that are in between that. The regression line at a 45 degree angle, when you have that perfect correlation, and that regression line that is completely horizontal. Everything we do is in between those. And it is an unavoidable statistical artifact. This has to happen. Mm -hmm. Now, we can ask ourselves, well, to what degree is it happening? We can ask ourselves, is what's happening important to us substantively? But this is not once in a blue moon, this might percolate up and mess with you. This happens with undergrad admissions and grad admissions and end of grade testing and no child left untested. I mean, no child left behind. (laughs) Uh We're like swimming in an Olympic length pool of regression to the mean in a lot of stuff that we do, not only in our work, but in society in general. Should SATs be banned? Should GREs be banned? 
They don't have to be the same thing. I have seen work where people have taken a sample of individuals, picked off the highest SAT scores and the lowest SAT scores, and say, look, they don't have the highest and lowest GPA, so this is not a valid test. Those with the highest SAT scores don't have the highest GPA on average, right? Because we have this regression to the mean when you select on the extremes. This is life in the big city. This is a reality. And we can attach a number to it, exactly a number. If we have two variables with a certain degree of association, whether they're the same variables or different variables, imagine it's the case that someone is two standard deviations above the mean on X, but the regression line is such that we only predict that they will be one standard deviation above the mean on Y. So their Y value is predicted to be half as deviant as their X value. The prediction has actually regressed halfway toward the mean. Well, that halfway, oh, by the way, is a correlation coefficient. And what symbol do we give to the correlation coefficient? R. Seemed like a bizarre choice when you learned about the correlation coefficient for the first time and someone said, yeah, we call that R. But it perfectly describes the extent to which your predictions on Y regress toward the mean. You've got a correlation of 0.5, your predictions regress half. You've got a correlation of 0.2, your predictions regress 80% of the way toward the mean. We can quantify this perfectly with a number. And here's part of the challenge, and this is where a lot of the readings explore historically where this has come up in the past. This seems to be rediscovered every generation. So again, I would highly recommend the Stigler piece because it's just really well-written and entertaining. But he notes about how Galton did this work and then nobody works in a vacuum. There were a number of people he collaborated with and a number of people who put more mathematics on than Galton was able to do at the time. It was in the late 1800s. I think that the regression to the mean with heights was in 1886. Hmm. Nearly 50 years later, there was a textbook written about the triumph of mediocrity in business, (laughs) written in 1933. And the entire textbook was based on the tendency of better performing firms to fall toward the mean of the others and so on. The entire textbook. Our hero, Harold Hotelling, (laughs) who was here Mm -hmm. at Carolina and was the inventor of principal components analysis, he wrote an excoriating review of this book. Now, this is 1933. And he says, in part, the seeming convergence is a statistical fallacy resulting from the method of grouping. These diagrams really prove nothing more than that the ratios in question have a tendency to wander about. (laughs) And then Stigler goes on, just reading a little bit from the paper, about how the recurrence of this fallacy, history suggests this will not change soon. Galton's achievement remains one of the most attractive triumphs in the history of statistics, but is one that each generation must learn to appreciate anew, one that seemingly never loses its power to surprise. Wow. 
One of the things that we said at the beginning of the episode about this is that this has tentacles into things that are going on every day. Imagine you live in a community that has identified this intersection that winds up having more accidents than any other intersection. And so they put in a speed camera and one month later they say, oh, there have been fewer accidents since we have installed the speed camera. If they had gone to the corner with the fewest number of accidents and installed a speed camera, then what you would find in general is that there would be more accidents after the installation of the speed camera, right? It's just an example of something that has some degree of random fluctuation that was selected for being extreme, now being less extreme the next time around. That's it. When you are interested in assessing a medication to help people who are at risk for heart disease, what do you do? You go out and you get a bunch of people who have really bad blood pressure, people who have whatever the other comorbidities are, and you're going to find the worst of the worst, right? Because these are the people who need the most help. And you administer some medication to these people, and you find that a little bit later, they are lower in some composite measure of heart risk. The irony of this is you could have administered... A placebo. (laughs) You could have given them a sugar pill. You could have given them an entire box of chocolates and their heart health probably would have been better one month later because they were selected on some extreme that was in all likelihood not representative of what is typical for those people. Some studies have shown decreases in blood pressure when healthy adults were given specially developed high-flavonoid cocoa drinks or chocolate. For example, one 2015 study found that 100 adults who drank a high-cocoa chocolate drink twice a day for one month had a drop in blood pressure of around 4 millimeters of mercury. So this infiltrates decisions that are made in research that's going on. This infiltrates decisions that are made in our community. If we were to go out and identify what are the top performing schools, and we go out to identify what are the bottom performing schools, and then we track them for some period of time, the following year, almost guaranteed the top performing school will no longer be the top performing school. What happens? That principal will lose their job as a result of a lack of performance. What happens at the lower end where the school that had performed the worst was identified? That school will have a tendency to perform better. Why? Because when they were identified as the lowest performing school, that was not necessarily representative of their typical behavior. They were chosen specifically on the basis of an extreme. So what do we do with that school? Well, we champion that principal as being some amazing agent of change, that principal could have been sitting in their office doing Wordle all day long, and we would have expected that particular outcome. These issues have real consequences for people. That's the big thing. There's one thing about, oh, ice cream sales are correlated with shark attacks, and you laugh. Mm -hmm. This has real implications for real people. My kids were in a school where they gave a one-time skills exam, and the very highest performers, those kids were put into a gifted track, and those that were lowest were identified in need of remedial attention. Yep. The highest performing are going to be drawn down, the lowest performing are going to be drawn up because of a statistical artifact. To be clear, this doesn't mean that some of these changes, some of the impact of an intervention, some of the impact of supportive schools or a child, that there's not a component that is causal. Right. Maybe your intervention 
really does reduce heart disease risk. Maybe putting these kids in a gifted program, those kids deserve to be in a gifted program. Sure. But the problem is, is these effects are often inextricably mixed. And then we as quantitative methodologists need to think about design issues and need to think about statistical methods that helps us to separate those when it's possible, or at least represent them in a model in a way that is respectful of this statistical artifact. And if you had measured everything perfectly, you said this really nicely before, if you if you had measured height with lasers and got the exact value of their height down to the, and I was really impressed to use angstrom. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the patronizing compliment. No, I, I don't mean to be patronizing. I'm just impressed when someone like you uses a word like that. So it does come down to the issue of the relation that you have and the ability for variables to relate from one time to the next or for two variables to relate to each other has in large part to do with the imprecision of the measurements that we have. If you had talked about using a test to decide on admission to a gifted program or decide on admission to a program for remediation, and that had been a perfect measurement, then we would not have expected some of that noise in the system that would have made some kids a little higher than we would have ordinarily expected on the day of testing or some kids lower than we would have expected on the day of testing. You wouldn't have that random component. Classical test theory describes this this as a score x is equal to its true value t plus error e. x equals t plus e. If you have no error in the system, then the measure you have x is just t. It's just truth, right? The way we can think about this in the context of other kinds of performance, like the sports examples that we gave in the beginning. A performance at any given time can be thought of as your actual talent, plus a certain amount of luck, a certain amount of the planets aligned for you to do really well that game or that season, right? That you would not expect the next time around because there is that luck component in performance or whatever you want to call it. And this often could be an opening lecture to a research methods class, a design class. Mm -hmm. It's not like we can't do anything about it. We have randomized control trials where we randomly assign individuals to the two groups instead of selecting on some score, right? Cook and Campbell, Campbell and Stanley. I mean, people have been writing about this for 60 or 80 years. There's regression discontinuity designs. They're delayed onset of interventions, right? So one that I really like is put everybody in the control group and a third you start at week three, a third you start at week six, and a third mm. you start at week nine. Mm-hmm. And you can test, well, is there differential spontaneous remission as a function of time before you give the individuals the intervention? There are some very clever ways of doing that. And again, I could not recommend Campbell and Kenny's book more highly. I've got it right in front of me. Table of Contents, they have a chapter on extreme group selection, matching, statistical equating, raw change scores, time series, longitudinal studies, cross-lag designs. They talk about each one of those, where does regression to the mean arise, and mm-hmm. potentially how can you combat it. Yeah. I have seen graduate students get very excited about this in the same way that I got very excited about it the first time I found it. 
take a pre-post, compute a raw change score. All right, so let's say you have SAT before, SAT after, and you take the raw change score. It is nearly a mathematical necessity that your time one score will correlate negatively Mm -hmm. with your raw change. Yep. The point is, one, this is a statistical artifact. Two, you should be aware of it either in your own work, but when reading the newspaper. Yep. And three, there are things we can do about it. There are design things, there are statistical procedures, there are propensity scores and equating, and if we're talking about shit, you should know. Oh, Sorry. This is family hour. If we're talking about stuff you should know if you're quanti, this is first and foremost among what we want to talk about. The next time you read that a speed camera was put at a particularly bad intersection, ask yourself at another intersection that was almost equally bad, what has happened at that intersection? Or if you go to the person who won rookie of the year, find someone else who had numbers that were almost as good as that person and look at what both of them did the following year, right? They, <laughs> they probably both regressed in their performance. Okay, and in the spirit of follow the money, okay, you have a retirement account, you want to buy a mutual fund, do not rank order on Morningstar's website mutual funds by 12-month performance and pick the highest performing mutual fund because statistically and mathematically, that will go down in its performance relative to other funds because it has to. Is this Kai talking? Because I didn't understand any of that. This is Marketplace. I'm Kai Rizdal. I'm just going to say this. I need you to trust me. Kai. Maybe this is a good stopping point because I'm going to go daydream about Kai. (laughs) Okay, you do that. It is interesting because regression to the mean doesn't apply to Kai. Kai is the best. I mean, come on, right? (laughs) Take care, everybody. See ya. Thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget to tell your friends to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they go for things that lift them when they're at a low point, even if only totally randomly. You can also follow us on X, where we are at QuantitudePod, and visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, where you can leave us a message, find organized playlists and show notes and syllabi, listen to past episodes, and other fun stuff. And finally, you can make it the best Valentine's Day ever and get that special someone cool Quantitude merch like shirts, mugs, stickers, and spiral notebooks from redbubble.com, where all proceeds from non-bootleg authorized merch go to donorschoose.org to help support low-income schools. You've been listening to Quantitude, the podcast that truly embodies the spirit of regression. Well, at least in our emotional maturity. Today's episode has been sponsored by Regression to Things Other Than the Mean, like Regression to Significance, the tendency for researchers' hypothesis tests to regress from larger p-values to smaller p-values. And by regression to the default, the tendency to use whatever procedures and assumptions your software package already has built in, whether or not it makes any sense whatsoever for your research questions or data. Also by regression to adequate reliability, the tendency for researchers to regress toward proclaiming whatever Chromebox Alpha they got in their study to be adequate. And finally, by regression to self-promotion, the tendency for manuscript reviewers' comments to regress toward their own interests and their own publications. 
This is most definitely not NPR.